0: Good morning, I'm Kristen Kittner, and if you want to stand and join me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be reading from John 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Thank you Kristen and good morning everyone it is my great joy to open God's word with you this morning as we continue our study of the gospel of John let's go to the Lord in prayer together father we acknowledge our need for you we cannot save ourselves we cannot live the Christian life ourselves We cannot discern your word ourselves. But rather, we are saved by Jesus doing for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. We live the Christian life through the power of the Holy Spirit in the community of faith. And we discern your word through the illumination of your Spirit. And so we pray this morning that you would teach us again... The beauty of the gospel of grace. That you would teach us to love one another. And that you would teach us by your word and by your spirit of truth. Amen. A few years back, I worked with a young woman who had a small child. She had recently been widowed. And she was left to raise this child by herself, by an alcoholic husband, who left her by suicide. She told me that no matter what would come her way, she had already faced the darkest day of her life. In our text today, the disciples have scattered, as Jesus said they would. The one they had followed for three years was now dead cruelly executed on a Roman cross between two criminals. Their world was torn apart, their beloved master gone. This had to be the darkest day of their lives. Many of us have faced dark days in our lives. For many, it's the darkness that comes through the death of a loved one. Death casts a long shadow in this fallen world. David wrote in Psalm 23 about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, in our passage, we will see that God is still at work. Specifically, we will see in verses 38 and 39, how on the darkest day, God is still at work in the hearts of His people. And in verses 40 to 42, how in the darkest day, God is at work keeping his promises. As we go through our text, we'll answer the following questions. Who is Joseph of Arimathea? Which prophecy was fulfilled by burying Jesus in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb? Why is it significant that the tomb was new? Why is it important that it was close at hand? Which prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus being in the tomb for three days? And finally, what principle do we see in this passage and how does it apply to us? First, we will see that God is at work in the hearts of his people. We'll look at Joseph of Arimathea in verse 38 and Nicodemus in verse 39. 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So, he came and took away his body. So, who was this man, and where is Arimathea? Scholars don't agree on the exact location of Arimathea. However, all the likely locations are in Judea, close to Jerusalem, not in Galilee. But only in connection with the burial of Jesus. Each gospel contributes something to our understanding of who he is. Matthew says that he was a rich man, a disciple of Jesus. Mark, that he was looking for the kingdom of God and was a respected member of the council meaning death. Luke says that as a member of the council, he had not consented to putting Jesus to death, that he was a good and righteous man. Only John adds that he was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. Now, the words secret and disciple don't go together. Children, here's a new word for you, oxymoron. It means that you're putting two words together that don't really belong together. We do it all the time in the English language. Have you ever heard deafening silence? Or eaten jumbo shrimp? Or experienced something that was bittersweet? Or eaten something that is awfully good? Those are oxymorons. In the same way, the words secret disciple should sound strange to our ears. In the ancient world, a disciple was much more than a student. A disciple actively imitated both the life and the teaching of the master. Discipleship was anything but secret. But in the midst of this darkest day, something happens to this secret disciple. Mark says, he took courage. Joseph of Arimathea took courage and went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. This did indeed take courage. Joseph of Arimathea was now openly identifying as a disciple of Jesus. Now the whole Sanhedrin knew. It was common for disciples to arrange for the burial of their master. But it took even more courage to go before a Roman governor to ask for the body of a prisoner executed for insurrection against Rome. Under Roman law, the bodies of prisoners were usually handed over to their next of kin. But not the bodies of those that were crucified for sedition. Those bodies would have been left there on the cross as a warning to others to be eaten by scavengers, the ultimate indignity. In verse 31, we saw that the Jews were wanting the bodies down from the crosses before the Sabbath, especially since it was the high Sabbath of Passover. The thieves crucified with Jesus would most likely have been buried in a common grave with other criminals. You see, the Jews didn't bury criminals with decent people. That would desecrate their grave. So, all this would have been understood by John's original readers. So, in verse 38, he says simply that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. The fact that Joseph was allowed into Pilate's presence is significant. No doubt, it only happened because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. Mark says, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead, but he didn't take Joseph's word for it. He summoned the centurion to see if it was true. And so... Against Roman custom, he granted Joseph of Arimathea's request. He allowed him to bury the body of an executed prisoner charged with insurrection against Rome. Even in the darkest of days, God is at work. He gives courage to Joseph of Arimathea, the secret disciple. Next, we'll see that in the darkest of days, God is at work through Nicodemus. Verse 39 starts out saying, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Of all the gospel accounts, only John speaks of Nicodemus. We're first introduced to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Just in case we had forgotten, John reminds us that Nicodemus was the one who came to him by night. Based on how John uses the word night in his gospel, it's clear that it means that he came secretly to Jesus. Like Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus seems to be afraid of the Jews. Also, like Joseph, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, one of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was patterned after the 70 elders of Israel under Moses Plus, the high priest, was who was their chief officer. They ruled under the Romans in all civil and religious matters. The only thing they couldn't do is put people to death. Nicodemus was also a Pharisee. The Old Testament has 613 commands, 248 do's and 365 don'ts. The Pharisees were committed to obeying every single command. In fact, they were so committed to obeying each command that they developed additional commands based on the original 613 to make sure that they didn't even come close to violating the originals. Nicodemus was also a respected teacher. Jesus referred to him as the teacher of Israel. But in that conversation back in chapter 3, Nicodemus misunderstood when Jesus spoke of spiritual things, a common occurrence in the Gospel of John. When Jesus spoke of being born again, Nicodemus couldn't see past the physical and the temporal, while Jesus spoke of the spiritual and the eternal. In fact, John chapter 3 leaves us with Nicodemus unable to comprehend what Jesus is saying. The last words Nicodemus speaks in that narrative are, how can those things be? But Jesus didn't give up on him. He takes him back to an Old Testament story that Nicodemus was familiar with. During the time of Moses, Israel sent, and God sent poisonous snakes among the people. But those who looked with faith at the metal snake that Moses held up on the pole were saved. This is a foreshadowing of Christ being lifted up on the cross. And those who look on him with faith are saved. John 3 verses 14 and 15 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The next verse, 16 together. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you have not believed in Him, as that verse says, I urge you to consider the truth claims of Christianity. That Jesus is indeed the Son of God, sent by God into the world because He loves you. And that by repenting and trusting in Jesus to save you, your sin is laid on Jesus on the cross and His righteousness is imputed to you. Nicodemus didn't seem to understand Jesus at the time. But somewhere between that conversation that they had back in chapter 3 and our text today, Nicodemus has become a disciple of Jesus. He participates with Joseph of Arimathea in this courageous act as an open follower of Jesus. From the narrative, it appears that Joseph took care of legal matters while Nicodemus brought the spices for burial. Verse 39 continues, Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Myrrh is a resin. The Jews turned it into a powder and mixed it with another powder, aloes, made from sandalwood. Now, you probably recognize the word sandalwood. It's used in cologne and deodorant today. The mixture of myrrh and aloes was intended to offset the stench of the body as it decayed. The quantity of spices, 75 pounds, is enormous. Only kings or the wealthiest people would have been able to afford so much. Gamaliel, the famous teacher who educated Paul, was buried with about 80 pounds of spices. So, while rare, because of the cost, the quantity wasn't unheard of. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus partnered together in this courageous act to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. They're both fearful of the Jews, yet here on this darkest of days, they find courage. The secret disciples had become open followers of Jesus because God is still at work in the hearts of his people. When we face our darkest of days, God is there. When we think all hope is lost, God is still at work. Paul writes to comfort the Thessalonians after some of them had died. He refers to them as asleep, a euphemism for saints that have died. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. My wife, Susan, grew up in a funeral home. As she watched families grieve, she saw the difference between those who grieved with hope and those who grieved without hope. And so, I urge you, believer, to hold on to hope. When things are hard, think about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. By God's grace, they were given courage. Next, we'll see that in our darkest of days, God is at work keeping his promises. He is fulfilling scripture. Throughout chapter 19, John says four different times this took place that the scripture might be fulfilled or this was to fulfill the scripture. Now in keeping with that theme we see two more promises of God fulfilled. First in verses 40 and 41 we will see that Jesus is buried in a rich man's grave. The fulfillment of Isaiah 53.9 Then, in verse 42, we will see how God is at work to fulfill Christ's Word regarding His three days in the grave. Please look with me at verse 40. So, they took the body of Jesus of the Jews. So, as I mentioned before, my wife grew up in a funeral home. Not long after we were married, my father-in-law asked if I wanted to watch him embalm a body. This involves replacing the blood in the body with embalming fluid. Now, this is quite different than the mummification process that was used by the ancient Egyptians. They would remove all moisture from the body, leaving only a dried form that would not easily decay. The Jews, on the other hand, neither embalmed nor mummified the body. They didn't add anything to the body or drain anything out of it. The burial custom of the Jews was to bind the body in linen cloths. The spices were bound to the body to help offset the stench as the body decayed. In Judea, there were three ways that people were buried. Most people were buried the first way. They were put in a shallow hole and covered up. The second way was for those who had a little more money. They were buried in a box, similar to caskets today, except the box was made out of stone. The third way was only for the wealthiest. They would be buried in a tomb cut out of the side of the hill. These were much more expensive as they required extensive excavation. They were usually family tombs and could hold several bodies. Usually, there was a low entrance that led to a larger space. And a stone was rolled in front of the entrance to keep out wild animals. Matthew tells us that Jesus was laid in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, which had been cut in the rock. It was his family's tomb, but new. No one had ever been laid in it, it was not used. And so he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. Please look with me at verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. The tomb was in a garden, probably with a wall around it. Later, there's mention of a gardener. The Old Testament talks about several kings whose tombs were in gardens, including King David. Gardens are significant in Scripture. The story of redemption starts in a garden named Eden. Adam sinned and the whole human race fell with him. But Adam and Eve were given the promise of a Redeemer who would crush the serpent's head. That Redeemer came. The Word of God made flesh, full of grace and truth. But he was betrayed in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, near Golgotha, where Jesus died on the cross, there's another garden. The garden where he is laid, having crushed the serpent's head. Achieving redemption for all those who look on him with faith. At the end of verse 41, John tells us that it was a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Why is that significant? Some Bible commentators point out that it would have avoided offending Jewish authorities. Jesus was executed as a criminal and burying criminals with others would have desecrated their grave. But there's a more important reason why this is significant. It means that Jesus was the only one buried in the tomb. On the third day, the tomb will be empty resurrected. Hundreds of years before Christ, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 9 says, They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. The thieves crucified with Jesus were buried in a common grave with other criminals, but Jesus was placed in the grave of a rich man, so that Isaiah 53-9 might be fulfilled. Not only was he buried in a rich man's tomb. But his body was prepared for burial in a way that only the wealthiest could afford. As we saw, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus used 75 pounds of costly spices. On the darkest of days, God is at work keeping his promises. He is fulfilling scripture. Finally, we see Christ's word is fulfilled by staying in the tomb for three days. Verse 42 sets the scene. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Luke says, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So, why is it important that Joseph of Arimathea's tomb is close at hand? It's important because the Sabbath was beginning. If they didn't bury him before sunset on Friday, they would have to wait until sunrise on Sunday. So there was an urgency to this. That's why John keeps talking about it. All work had to cease on the Sabbath, including transporting of spices or carrying a body. That Joseph's tomb is nearby is another evidence of the providence of God. Joseph of Arimathea were working against the clock because of the Sabbath, but they were unknowingly part of a bigger plan. Jesus needed to be buried right away to fulfill prophecy. Earlier in John two eighteen, the Jews asked for a sign. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Not Destroy this temple, and after I lay in state for a few days, I'll be buried for three days. And th- No, no. It's destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. John continues in 2.21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed two things, the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. We just read the word that Jesus had spoken, but what Scripture is being talked about? In Matthew chapter 38, Jesus tells the Jews that no sign would be given except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's three days were a foreshadowing of the three days that Christ was in the grave. That's why John says the disciples believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, there's a cultural note that's important for us to understand here. The three days don't have to be full 24-hour periods. The Jews would count a partial day as a day. A couple of examples. In Esther chapter 4, Queen Esther told the Jews to fast for three days, then she would go to the king. It says, on the third day, she went to the king. The three days included partial days. In 1 Kings chapter 12, Rehoboam told Jeroboam to come back in three days for an answer. It says, he came back on the third day. Again, three days included partial days. So the fact that Joseph of Arimathea's tomb is close at hand means that Jesus is buried on Friday instead of Sunday. And Jesus is resurrected on the third day according to the scripture and the word that he had spoken. What an amazing series of events. Someone like Peter or one of Jesus' brothers. It's unlikely that Pilate would even give them the time of day, but God is at work in the heart of Joseph of Arimathea. He takes courage and goes to Pilate, a man who just happens to be a member of the Sanhedrin. A man who just happens to be rich and has a family tomb. And it just happens to be a new tomb that was empty. And God is at work in the heart of Nicodemus. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of costly spices. Not only is Jesus laid in a rich man's tomb, but he is buried in a way that only the wealthiest could afford. And the prophecy Written hundreds of years earlier about the Messiah's burial is fulfilled. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb just happens to be close by so they can lay Jesus to rest before the Sabbath. And so Jesus is in the de- grave for three days so that the scripture and the word he had spoken are fulfilled. Coincidences? <laughs> I think not. Rather, it is the hand of God. We started out this morning talking about someone that I used to work with. She had a small child and had recently been widowed by an alcoholic husband who left her by suicide. She told me that no matter what would come her way she had already faced the darkest day of her life. For her sake I hope that's true. But for those of us who have dark days ahead, we should all remember the principle we saw in this passage. What principle is that? The principle that even in the hardest of days and in the darkest of times, God is still at work. He is still at work in the hearts of His people, and He is still at work keeping His promises to us. What is the application of that principle? that you should hold on to hope and trust in the One who walked through the valley of the shadow of death for you. Daily, that should be reflected in our attitudes and actions. And when those really hard days come, we trust the One who went to the grave for us. Believer, hold on to trust and hold on to hope, even in your darkest of days. Because God has not abandoned you. God is still on his throne. He is still at work. And he still loves you. Let's pray. Father, how beautiful the reminder today of your steadfast love for us. Of your faithfulness to us. And of the riches of your grace poured out on us. Teach us, Lord, to run to you, our refuge and strength, to trust in you, who never fails us, and to hope in you, who always loves us. Amen.